today I'm going to read chapter 25 of The Shakespeare's Pie, so here I go. Despite Mr. Hemming's assurances, I could not help reading about Julia's fate. In her letter, she had said that her funds were fading fast. By now, she might well be wandering the streets of Paris starving. Nor could I help wondering how my first faltering efforts at playwriting would be received by men who had been performing plays half their lives. With these matters occupying my mind, I had little to spare for Mr. Johnson's script. I did manage to copy old Ned Shakespeare's lines before rehearsal, as he promised, but not, but not much else. As we assembled downstairs for dinner, I spotted my script changing hands from Mr. Arnon to Mr. Shakespeare's. I concerned Mr. Hemmings and, and said, and asked anxiously, Has Mr. Arman read it, do you wish? Apparently so, said Mr. Hemmings. And you? You've read it as well? He smiled at my acceptance, inst- insistence manner. I have. Well, I prompted him. What do you think? I think that you show a good deal of promise. We'll talk about it this evening, after others have had a chance to look at it, eh? I nodded about without enthusiasm. I didn't like the sound of what of that word, promise. It was the very term that had been applied to me by various members of the company back when I began acting with them in insignificant in roles. Now that I was more experienced, I realized that it had been uh, em, emphis, emphi, emphimism, emphimism, a kind of way of saying that I was hopefully in, incompetent, but might have a faint hope of someday being ade- adequate. Though I had never considered myself a gluten for punishment, I went begging for it that afternoon at scrumming practice by asking Mr. Armin his opinion about my play. He kept a hand on my shoulder, as he sometimes did after I had shown an unusual skill with the sword. Very promising, he said, as I had given such short shrift to Shijamas that morning, I had my her pen pennies by returning to the office to copy another side or two before I headed home. The door that opened into the office from the hallway was locked. I drew my purse from within my doublet and dug into it. My fingers encountered nothing but a few coins, mostly pennies and farthings. That made up to my Ernie fortune. Puzzled, I turned the purse upside down, took its contents into my hand, and examined it incredulously. Perhaps someone had replaced my purse with one of those trick purses used by sleight-of-hand artists, where the key was uncountably disappeared. I searched my wallet and found only my table book, my plumbacco pencil, and purified sweetmeats that Mr. Pope's boys had somehow missed. 
I intended to search to my brain. Then I had, when I had last seen the key earlier that morning, I was sure when I let myself and Ned in to through the outer door. Ned had distracted me by asking for his side. Perhaps without thinking, he had tossed the key into the desk. Or had it left in the lock? Surely it had not been such much of a hard-haired cop. Well, there was but one way to find out. I descended the dark parlor, meaning to go into the courtyard and up the outside steps to the balcony. As I headed to the door, I heard my name called. I turned to see four of the company sharers staring, sharing a booth of and a round ale. Mr. Armin beckoned to me. Were you wondering what had? We were wondering what had become of you. I was about to copy some more of Sejanus. I carefully avoided any mention of the missing key. Well, come and sit down with us for a moment. While I pulled a chair up to the end of the table, Mr. Armin summoned the tapster and ordered an ale for me. We've just been discussing measure for measure," said Mr. Hemmings. I stared at him, momentarily baffled. "What's that then? Your play? Oh, oh yeah, I. I've considered so many titles I'd forgotten that one." It's a good title," said Mr. Phillips. "Yes," said Mr. Shakespeare. "I'd wish I'd thought for it." Well, you—you may have, and you like. I can easily call mine something else. I've not shorted for titles. Thank you," he said. "It's not." I glanced nervously at the four of them in turn. So, is that all you liked about it then? The title? No, no," said Mr. Shakespeare. "In fact, it has quite a good number of good qualities." I waited for him to go on to cite some of its good qualities. When he did not, I swallowed hard and said, "But it's not as good enough, is it?" Mr. Shakespeare cast a beseeching glance at Mr. Hemmings, as though asking for help for some more tactical quarter. Not as it stands, Mr. Mr. said, "Mr. Hemmings, gently. Perhaps if you were to work on it a bit more, then show it to us again." Unaccountably, I found myself fighting back tears. I felt nearly as forlorn as I had been when Judith left, or when I learned that my father had died. Though none of the sharers had said, or, or even suggested, that my work. Was worthless. It would. It was that what I heard, or at least that the part of me was go- governed by emotion, hard. Yet at the same time, some more reasonable part、um, acknowledged that they were right. Of course, that I could not possibly expect to turn out a well-made play on the first try. Any more than a squirmer would expect to defeat the first opponent he had ever faced. It was just that I worked so hard on it and hoped for so much from it. You mustn't be discouraged, Wedge," said Mister Shakespeare. 
We're all agreed, I think, that the play shows... I, I can. It shows promise. I was about to say that it shows considerable skill and a good ear for Dylan. There were several speeches in there that I would have sworn I wrote myself. You did, said Mr. Hemmings, reminded him. Mr. Shakespeare laughed. I meant the parts that Widge composed. He turned to me. You know, if you intend to be a playwright, you may wish to take a nom de plume, one that will look a bit more distinguished on a playbill. And with your talent for titles, said Mr. Mr. Phillips, you should have no trouble coming up with a good name for yourself. It struck me then that none of them knew yet how about about Jimmy Redsaw. I had not meant to keep it from them, only from Judith, and now that she was gone, what did it matter? Actually, I said, I do have a name, or neither end of one at least. Half my audience seemed astonished by the news, the other half were not. Mr. Phillips and Mr. Armin confessed that they had never really believed that Jimmy believed Jamie Redsaw's story. Mr. Shakespeare and Mr. Hemmings said that though he had not completely trusted the man, they had never doubted that he was my father. Will you take his name then? asked Mr. Armin. I stood thoughtfully into my pot of ale. I've not made up me mind. Redsaw has indicated that your Christian name might be, said Mr. Phillips. Nay, I was not around when I was born, and my mother didn't live long enough to name me. I do recall Mistress McGregor saying once that the priest who baptized me gave me his own name for want of any other. So one has ever called me by it, though. Do you know what it was? William, I believe. That's an excellent name, said Mr. Shakespeare. <laughs> Mr. Hemmings nodded approvingly. William Redsaw. What, what would you, what? That would not look amiss on a playbill. I gave a spectacular uh, sniff. Amusing I ever managed to write a decent play. Oh, you will, he turned to Mr. Shakespeare. Will he not, Will? Mr. Shakespeare shrugged and gave me a rather sly smile. If he has the will, he will. I I refuse to be coaxed out of my sour mood by their banter. Well, in the meanwhile, will you back to the putrid one, though I wanted nothing less than to look at another play just then, I forced myself to return to the office, this time by the way the outside stairs. The, even if I did not work on Sejanus, it must at least determine that I had not done with the piece. The sky was nearly dark now, and even before I reached the second floor balcony, I noticed a faint glow of light from the small window of the office. Someone must be working with them, but who? All the sharers had either gone home or were gathered in a dark parlor. Curious and little alarmed, 
I crept along the balcony, crashed down the next window, and peered inside. A single lighted candle sat upon Mr. Shakespeare's desk. Bent over it, one large hand cooped out the flame as though to my keep its light contained was hulking figure that I did not recognize at once. Only then, only when the man's face moved from the shadows and into the candle's light, revealing thick, unruly eyebrows that set above bulging eyes, I did realize who the intruder was, Henswell from the admirers' men. It was easy enough to guess why he was here. He wanted the script of Sejanus. So that was chapter 25. Bye guys, see you later. See you later, see you later, see ya, see ya later. Bye guys!